And this morning, the message is we're going to finish this last chapter. Uh, it's about the resurrection. It's He is risen. That is the title. He is risen. The last chapter of Mark is after the resurrection. Everything in it, again, is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, we left off last Sunday morning where Joseph of Arimathea had gotten permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body and to put him in a tomb. Now, we pick up the story after the resurrection. Paul said in Romans 4.25, He was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And you know, and I've read that before, but it's, it's wonderful when you read things over and over again. That, uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> that, um, you know, you, you read things and, and they speak to you. Uh, maybe not before or as such, but when I read Romans 4.24, I, I thought about that. And, and think about it. It says, Jesus was delivered up because of our, because of our offenses. That is, he went to the cross, he died a horrible death, more horrible than anyone has ever experienced, and it says it was for our offenses, for us. But then it says he was raised because of our justification. So he was delivered up for my sins, and he was raised up so that I could be justified. That I could be right with God. That, that's an amazing thing. Amazing thing to stop and think about. Jesus was turned over to the religious leaders to die a horrible death on a cross because of our sins. And then raised up to life so that he could make us right with God. That's amazing. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is what he claimed to be. And that is the Savior of man. Who he claimed to be. The very Son of God. He told his disciples that this was going to happen. That this would take place. And that he would be crucified and buried. And that he would rise from the dead on the third day. But they hadn't really understood this truth. Even the women who went to his tomb didn't expect to find him there. They didn't didn't expect to find him alive. They had even bought some spices to finish anointing his body. So let's begin with chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 now. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, and they might, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See, see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly, and they fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So here in verses 1 through 8, we have the empty tomb. It was very early in the morning. Sun was starting to rise. When Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and in Luke it tells us Joanna was with these ladies as well. They all headed for the tomb. And they got there very early in the morning. And as they were walking to the tomb, and you know, just talking among themselves about the events of that weekend, you know, from Friday to Sunday, you know, and, and everything that had happened, uh, they, they began to say, well, wow, who's going to be able to roll the stone away for us? But then when they got to the tomb, they find to their surprise that the stone had already been, ro- been rolled away so that they could go inside. Now, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. We need to understand that. He could have gotten out with that stone rolled over that door. He was resurrected in this new body. All right, It wasn't limited to the, the things that the old body was limited to. The stone was rolled away so that people could go in and see that he was gone. That he had risen from the dead just like he said he was going to. Then the women were met by two angels, it says, inside the tomb in Luke chapter 24, verse 4. Mark only focuses on one angel here, and he's referred to as a young man in verse 5. And then to the women's surprise, when they got to the tomb, expecting to find the Lord's body, the angels tell them in verse 6, he's not here, he's risen. Look, here's where they laid him. See for yourself, he's gone. And then the young man, or the angel here, dressed in a long white robe, told them to go and to tell his disciples, and I love this, and especially Peter, especially Peter, that they should keep their appointment with him in Galilee like he told them. You know, and I like that and Peter portion where it was added to here. Now, Jesus told the disciples, he says, after I resurrect, he says, after I have been raised, in Mark 14, 28, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. So meet me there. The women were the first messengers of the wonderful resurrection, they, they, uh, of that good news. And when the angel told the women to go tell the disciples and Peter, notice there was a special word of encouragement just for Peter. He didn't say, go tell the disciples. You'd think that that would include Peter. And it would. But he made a special point to say, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter, I believe, when he denied Christ and he watched from a distance, remember, and he was warming himself at the enemy's fire and they saw everything that Jesus went through, the trial and the crucifixion. Peter, at that point of denial, never got a chance to make things right with Jesus personally. And I'd be willing to bet that Peter was just beating himself to death that he was so guilty so broken in heart and spirit that he had denied his lord and that he didn't get a chance to personally make up with him to make things right but in god knowing that said hey go tell the disciples and peter especially tell peter to go meet me at the lake of galilee like i said you know before i was crucified peter must have been 
a broken-spirited man. And I think when you read John 21, one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels, where Peter met them on the shore that next morning and they were fishing and Jesus was cooking some fish and bread and invited them to come eat. I think it reveals Peter's broken heart in the actions that we see him take when they, he finally realizes it's Jesus. Because he, again, he probably thought he'd never see Jesus again. And he'd never be able to make things right with him, personally speaking. Remember, when they were at the Sea of Galilee, they decided to go fishing. They had fished all night and didn't catch a thing. But then when morning came, Jesus was on the shore. And he was like, they're making bread and fish. And the disciples didn't know it was Jesus at the time. And then Jesus said to the disciples, hey, guys, have you caught anything yet? They answered, no, not yet. And then Jesus said, hey, toss your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some fish. And so they did. And they caught so many fish, they couldn't pull them into the boat. And then John said to Peter, it's the Lord. And it says, when Peter heard that, when he heard it was the Lord... It says he put on his outer garment and he plunged into the water. It says the rest of them just came in by boat. But I'm thinking Peter saying, oh man, I got to get to Jesus before I don't have a chance. I need to get to him and I need to make things right before he gets away or I don't get a chance to meet him again. Again, the other guys just say, hey, they just went in by the boat, but not Peter. He plunged. The word plunge means, it means... Uh, violent to to do so violent or intense so he just you know he he like an olympic swimmer man he probably jumped off that boat and dove into that water that i'm going to get to jesus before i don't have a chance and so again it just shows i believe it shows peter's um in broken spirit and he sees jesus oh man he has a chance now to make things right with the lord now the women they were totally amazed and afraid at the same time of what they had seen and what they had heard not knowing what to say, they ran away from the empty tomb as quickly as they could. According to verse 8, the empty tomb has never been successfully explained away. Nobody's ever been able to explain what really happened. What really happened was he resurrected. But, you know, nobody could explain, give a, 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 an explanation other than that. You see, if Jesus' enemies could have produced a body, that would, killed, that would have killed everything. If Jesus' enemies could have produced a body, they would have destroyed the new and the young faith. We wouldn't be here this morning. But you see, they couldn't produce a dead body. Why? There wasn't one. There was no dead body to be found. To believe that the disciples decided themselves to steal the body and hide it so that they could uh, preach a deception, that's beyond belief. On the other hand, a lot of the disciples had no doubt whatsoever that Jesus, that they had seen the Lord. Because Paul tells us that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And there are at least three great witnesses to the validity of the resurrection this morning. One of the first evidences that validates the resurrection is the church. We, the church, the universities all over the world, we are witnesses because we are born again. We are witnesses because we are the church. 
that Jesus resurrected. Secondly, the New Testament. The whole New Testament is about who? Jesus Christ. A whole New Testament written about Jesus Christ, proving that there was a a resurrection. The third evidence is the Lord's day. Today, here we are this morning, learning about Christ because he resurrected from the dead. The church, the New Testament, the Lord's day, Sunday, is evidence that Jesus resurrected from the grave because none of these, that is the church, the New Testament, the Lord's day, none of these would have come into existence if Jesus hadn't resurrected. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Mary Magdalene, it says here, ran to tell Peter and John what had happened. And, and, you know, what, what she had found, or better, what she didn't find, Christ in the tomb when she got there. And then she hung around the tomb for a while after they left, according to John 20, verses 2 through 10. Let me read those verses to you. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple, which was John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been round his head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, that was John, <clears throat> went in also, and he saw and he believed. Notice, he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. It was then, as they hung around the tomb for a while, that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, according to verse 9, and according to John 20, 11 and 18, through 18. It says that Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as, the, as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She, supposing Jesus to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She, said, she turned and she said to him, uh, she, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say that I am ascending to my father and your father and to God, my God <clears throat> and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, when <clears throat> Jesus first spoke to Mary... It says she thought he was the gardener for she didn't recognize him. And it could have been because it was early in the day. The light hadn't quite been bright. Uh, Her eyes could have been, you know, 
hazy and filled with tears and, and she couldn't really see that clearly. But when Jesus said her name, Mary, she knew it was Jesus. And, you know, it, it kind of says that, you know, when, when, when Jesus calls you, you know. You know he's talking to you and you know he's called you. He said, Mary, and it says, she turned and said, Rabboni, knowing that it was Christ. And from her conversation with Jesus, it seems that Mary didn't fully grasp what the angels had said to her. But she was the first believer to see the risen Lord. And verse 8 may give the idea that all the other women left, but they didn't. Verse 9 tells us that Mary met Jesus personally. And after he appeared to Mary, Jesus met other women as they were on their way to tell the disciples about their conversation with Jesus. At first, the women were both joyful and afraid, and understandably so. But after they met the risen Lord, they found Jesus, they found the disciples, and they shared the good news with the disciples. You see, it's one thing to hear the message. It's totally something else to meet Jesus personally. And again, you know that you know when you've met Christ. When you meet Jesus, you have something to share with other people. Hearing about Jesus and knowing about Jesus are so different than knowing Jesus. And, you know, a lot of people think, you know, they don't have anything to say. They don't, they don't know what to say or how to say it. That they think maybe they have to have, you know, some method or some process in sharing Jesus Christ. You know what? I compare it to, maybe it's a poor comparison, but to... Going on vacation, you go, you have a great time, you know, you, you've, you've done this, you've seen that, and you've experienced all these things, and, and when you come home, you, you share that vacation with people. Oh, I, I saw this, and I did this, and, and I, you know, we went over here, and we saw these, and, and it's the same thing. When, when you meet Christ, man, there's things that happen in your life. You know, you, you see things through, through God's eyes and you, you've done things, you know, in the name of Christ and the power of Christ. And, and you've got all of these wonderful experiences. You know what? Share that with people. It doesn't take any type of skill. You're just sharing what you know. And people need to know what you know about Jesus. They need to know what he's done for you. They need to know how he's helped you. They need to know how he's empowered you to do things that you couldn't do before. How he enables you to live that sanctified life. And that's what we need to share. And that's, again, just as simple as talking about some great experience that you've had. So again, you know, meeting Jesus is so much different than hearing about him or knowing about him. Verses 9 through 14. Now, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they had mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, notice, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. It says, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had sent him after he had risen. After he had risen. So the emphasis in verses 9 through 14 is on the disciples' unbelief. 
They were mourning and they were weeping instead of rejoicing at the good news. They had been told that, the, that they had, there were witnesses who saw Christ and that he wasn't in the tomb. And it says they didn't believe. They should have been rejoicing at the good news, but no, they were still mourning and weeping. They didn't believe the women when they told them Jesus had risen and he wasn't in the tomb. Now, why is that? Well, it could have been, it could have been because they were women. Because remember, in those days, women were, they were extremely prejudiced against women. And it could have been because the witness of women was not acceptable in a Jewish court. Even when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's who they're talking about here in verses 12 through 13. Even when the two that were walking on the road to Emmaus gave their witness... Not everybody believed them. So it seems like there was division in the upper room until Jesus appeared to all of them. And when he did rebuke them for their unbelief, it was caused caused by their hardened hearts. And he was making it clear that the witnesses of his resurrection, that is those who physically saw him, could and should be trusted. Verses 15 now through 18. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, this is Christ's commission to the disciples to be sent out and to witness or to share the gospel. Before the, descent, before the disciple, I'm sorry, before Jesus ascended, before he went back into heaven, 40 days later, Jesus gives his followers several orders. And in this commission, Jesus points out, and this is important for us to grasp here, Jesus points out to the disciples their message. It's our message today. It's the gospel. And their ministry and our ministry is preaching. Preaching what? The gospel. Our message is the gospel and our ministry is to preach it. And then Jesus backed it up with supernatural credentials that only he could give. He says, you you guys go out, you preach the message... The message of the gospel, and I will give you credentials, and I will give you uh, evidence, power to back up what the message is that you're preaching. The message is the gospel, the good news about salvation through a living faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The ministry is to share this message with the whole world, with every creature. Now, a lot of people think they don't have a ministry, or they don't know what it is. It's been given right here. You do have a ministry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached by you and me. That's our ministry. Very simple. Very simply put. Now, let's read over verse 15 and 16 again. Because something here that, you know, I want to make real clear. Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes, no, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. 
What I want to share here is that when you read over verses quick, uh, verse 15 and 16, if you read over them quickly and you don't really study them closely, it would suggest that you must be baptized as well as repent of your sins to be saved. Because it says in verse first part of verse 16, it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But this suggestion or interpretation, it disappears when you notice that the emphasis is on believing. Now, notice that the second part of verse 16, Jesus said, if a person does not believe, he's condemned. He did not say if, he's, if he did not believe and is not baptized, he's condemned. Even if, he, he, you know, even if he has been baptized, but doesn't believe, he's condemned. Because baptism does not save you. Baptism is an outward display of an inward change. Baptism is, is evidence that you have been buried uh, in your sins. When you go down, when, when, you know, when you're baptized and they, they lay you under the water, it's a picture of the old man dying and going into the grave. And when you come up out of the water, it, it symbolizes the resurrection, the new life in Christ. The old life is left in the grave, in the, in the tomb. In the water. And you come out and now you're walking in the resurrection life. You're walking in the new life. Listen to John chapter 3 verse 16 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believes not, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. Notice over and over again, it was believing, believing, believing. We have evidence of that in Acts chapter 8, 36 through 38. Now, as they went down the road, they being Philip and the eunuch. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said to Philip, look, here's some water. And he tells Philip, the eunuch says to Philip, what hinders me from being baptized? What keeps me from being baptized? Philip said to the eunuch, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So it says, Philip commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and he baptized him. But notice again, he said, what's keeping me from being baptized? Believing in Christ. And then when he said, I believe in Christ, that he is the Lord. Then he says, now you can be baptized. It's the believing and trusting in Christ for salvation that saves you, not the baptism. More evidence of that in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were, they were there watching uh, John the Baptist baptized there at the Jordan River. And... He tells them, he tells the scribes and the Pharisees, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, show me that you're born again. Show me fruit of the new life. See, John wanted proof. And many times, you know, we, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're, you're judging me because you, you don't see any fruit. Well, John's going, hey, show me you're born again. Show me fruit in your life that says you are born again. And then in verse 11, John Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water. Notice, unto repentance. 
In other words, John baptized on the basis that people had confessed their sins and have repented. I baptize you with water unto repentance. After you have confessed your sins, after you have repented, then I baptize. The thief on the cross, he went to paradise the day that Jesus died. Now, Jesus did not tell him, hey, you know, before he dies, you need to take him down and baptize him. No. He said, today you will be with me in in paradise. He didn't get baptized. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and look at all those heroes of faith who went to heaven. None of them were baptized. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, if baptism was salvation, that wouldn't have been a cool thing for Paul to say. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. That would have meant none of you were saved. And he said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, these two he baptized. He says, because Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Because salvation is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from believing the gospel, not a religious ritual. And that's why we don't do infant baptism. Infant baptism is not found or taught in the Bible anywhere. Because baptism was performed only after confession of sin and repentance. An infant has no sin to confess. Even if he could confess, I mean, even if he, he had sin, he couldn't confess because he can't talk. So again, we follow the biblical scripture, the biblical pattern. When David's son from Bathsheba died, after only being a week old, David said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David's son did not get baptized. But David says, I'm going to go be with him one day in heaven. But that baby can't return to me. And then when God sent Moses to challenge Pharaoh in Egypt, he gave him special miracles to perform as as his divine credentials, proving that he was sent from God. Just as he gave the disciples special, again, credentials, if you will, or evidences that they were sent by God and they were you know, uh, preaching the gospel, God backed it up with miracles. And we saw that with Moses in the Old Testament. Listen to Exodus chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. And again, God was sending Moses out to Egypt to, to speak to Pharaoh that, so that, that the children of Israel could be let go. But, but Moses is saying, but God, what, what, if they, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe what I say and that, that, that I'm sent from you? What if they don't believe me that you appeared to me, Lord? And this is what the Lord said to Moses. What is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Re- reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it. And it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, Moses, or heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, 
if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So again, the beginning of the ten plagues, signs that verified that Moses was sent by God. This was also true of some of the prophets. They had signs and wonders behind their message. The apostles were also given signs and special signs that enforced and validated their message. And the whole point of this is to understand that the miracles alone do not prove that a person has been sent by God. The Bible says that Satan is going to do many signs and wonders in the last days and especially during the tribulation period. So Satan is a miracle worker too. So we can't trust in signs and miracles that one is sent by God. Because the message must also be true to God's word. What the message says, what it, it has to be approved. It has to be in, in agreement with the word of God. And that's the purpose of why we have to know the Bible. Because if somebody's witnessing to you or somebody's preaching from the pulpit or whatever, and if you don't know the word of God and they're po- preaching false doctrine, how are you going to know? How are you going to know? Miracles don't prove that a person has been sent by God. Most of the signs that are listed here in verses 17 through 18 did take place in the days of the apostles and are recorded in the book of Acts, which we'll begin to see next week when we get into the book of Acts. Now, this taking up of servants and drinking of poison mentioned in verse 18 The closest thing that we see to taking up of servants is what happened to Paul in Malta in Acts chapter 28. Remember when they they were on their way to Malta Malta, and the boat shipwrecked and they all went upon shore and it was cold and Moses went, I mean, uh, Paul was looking for sticks to light a fire. Well, he's reaching in for some sticks and it says a, a, a viper clasped onto the back of his hand, a poisonous snake. And it says he shook it off. And all those that were abounded, they were amazed because he didn't die. And you see, that's because Paul was sent by God for this special purpose that he was on. And God protected him. In the Bible, we don't have anyone drinking any poison or playing with snakes to prove their faith. We don't have anybody drinking poison and surviving Now, there is no doubt that God has done that and can do many wonders like that for his people and probably many that we don't know about, but we'll find find out about it when we get to heaven. We have a lot of people who mean well, but are untaught people who will handle snakes and will drink snakes. We see that back in the South. You see, these snake handlers who handle rattlesnakes and and believe that by faith they're doing this and if they get bit, they're not going to be... They're not going to die, but we've seen that happen. They've gotten bit and we've seen them die. You know, they claim these signs for themselves and they die because of it. And those around them will say, well, the reason they died is because they didn't have enough faith. No, it wasn't they didn't have enough faith. It's because the rattlesnake is poisonous and that's what killed them. That's why they died. Which is very sad. That's why knowing and understanding the scriptures is so important. Reading this kind of situation. Paul said in Romans 23 says that whatever is not of faith is sin. You know, I do believe that like with Paul, when he was sent out to when he 
was sent out to Malta and was on his way out and, and, and that happened to him, God protected him because God had him going and serving a purpose. But when we want to do things on our own and God hasn't sent us, and it's not God's call for me to do this, and I step out and go, oh, I'm just going to go out and step by faith. You've stepped out of the will of God. If it isn't the work of God, if it isn't a call of God. The purpose, the person who takes up serpents, that is handle snakes, to prove his or her faith, they are yielding, they are falling for the very same temptation, that very same temptation Satan gave to Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Remember, Satan took Jesus to the top of the temple and he said, look at all of this. He says, you know, and also, you know, this is all yours if you bow down and worship me. But he took him up there and he said, now cast yourself down and see if God will take care of you. Basically, Satan was saying, hey, you know, show off your show off your faith. You know, he wants us to show off our faith and he wants to force God to perform unnecessary miracles. God does not perform unnecessary miracles just to do it. Jesus refused to tempt God and we need to follow that example. We know for sure that God cares for his children when they're in his will. And when they're in dangerous places. But he's not responsible to care for us when we have been forewarned and we foolishly put ourselves in a dangerous position that is out of his will. We are called to live by faith, not by chance or foolishness. We are called to trust him, not to tempt him. There's always, always evidence from those who believe. Just as one is born again, they are a new creature in Christ. And there are evidences of the new birth of that supernatural life. Let's close with verses 19 and 20. So then, after the Lord has spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So here we have Jesus' ascension in verses 19 through 20. Jesus' ascension marked the end of his earthly ministry. It is finished. He said, the work that the Father has given me is complete. I'm done. I've finished my call. I've finished my mission. And now this was going to be the beginning of his new ministry in heaven as high priest and advocate for his people. It says in verse 19 that now he sits at the right hand of God. The right hand is a place of honor. One of Jesus' heavenly ministries is that of empowering now his people to do his will. And it's fitting that the gospel of Christ, the servant, should end with this reference to work in verse 20. Notice, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. And it's just as fitting for Matthew, Matthew's gospel which preaches Christ the King, to end with a reference here to his great authority. And by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord wants to work in us. He wants to work with us and he wants to work for us. The Lord's work is not finished yet. Jesus hasn't finished his work. He's still working in and through his people to save a lost world. And his servant son, the God's servant son, Jesus Christ, returned to heaven. 
But you know what? He still has his people on earth who can be his servants if they're willing. If we're willing, we can still be his servants. And what a privilege it is. Notice it says that God wants to work with them in verse 20. What a privilege it is to have the Lord working with us. I mean, what an opportunity and what a responsibility we have to carry the gospel to the whole world. Even Jesus himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Are you serving him today? Are you a participant in the work of God or a spectator? Here's some scriptures on on our service and and why we were created. Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, we are his workmanship. That means masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. And he says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind, uh, every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that's the way it is with churches everywhere. There's always a lot of work, a lot of things that can be done and need to be done. But there are so few laborers who are willing to step and say, hey, I'll do that. I'll take charge of that. I'll, be, I'll take the responsibility to get that done. It's always just the same few people in the church all the time. And, and you hear a lot of times, why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? This would be a great ministry. You want to take over it? You want to work on that? Oh, no, I can't do that. It's like they want the same few people to do all of these things that could be done. You know, I I look at God puts it on your heart. I say, pray. Pray. And see if that's something that God would want you to do. But a lot of times it's, no, I can't do that. But so many things that could be done need to be done. That's why we need to pray that God would send the laborers. Father, we thank you so much for your marvelous word, Lord. And Father, such great teaching in your Bible, Lord. Father, help us to want to learn more. That we can know more, Father, so that we can teach better. That we can have answers for the people that ask us questions, God. And we don't have to say, I don't know. But to say, I do know because the Bible tells me so. And to share with others, to read and to, to, to seek the scriptures for their answers to life and to life's problems. And so, Father, we thank you today for this wonderful, again, message. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he might, that we ask that he would just teach it to us, Lord. That he would open the scriptures, open our eyes that we can understand, our eyes to see and our heart to receive God. So, Lord, may you just bless your people today, Father. Watch over them throughout the day and bless the 
Bless the moms as they go out and they spend time with their families, Lord. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, God. We thank you for your goodness, for your generosity, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. And it's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay.